Well, good morning. Happy Sunday to everybody. It is my uh, joy and privilege this morning to deliver the message. Um, And as you can probably see in the bulletin, I've entitled the sermon, Forgiveness and Our Salvation. And I'm going to be preaching to you from Matthew chapter 18, verses 21 through 35. This is the parable our Lord told his disciples about the the unforgiving servant. Uh, And I chose this passage this morning. Uh, because it has been such a, uh, such a blessing in my life. And, uh, and I, there's obviously a lot of great value to it because we can learn something uh, not only about our salvation, but also about God in heaven. Um, so with that, uh, please bow with me and I'll open us in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we love you so much and we recognize that you are holy. And it is because that you are holy and that we are unholy that we have a big problem. It's because we cannot live up to the standard that you have set, Father. But as I read from your verses this morning, uh, you are great in your forgiveness. You forgive freely and totally for all those who call on the name of Jesus Christ uh, by faith through through grace. Uh, Lord, be with me this morning to help convey uh, the text accurately uh, and faithfully. And that you will use the words I'll be preaching this morning to work within each of us, uh, just to renew our hearts, give us a greater understanding about you and about your kingdom, and that we can live it out, that we can forgive the way that you forgive, Father. It's in your name that I pray. Amen. Well, as I mentioned, our reading is going to come from Matthew chapter 18, 21 through 35, so please turn there in your Bibles if you haven't already. Uh, We live in a culture that is dominated by pride, by anger, and rage. It is almost unnecessary to provide support for the statement, and surely all of you have observed this in one form or another just from being out in the world. It is evident in the common, everyday interactions you can see in the world around us. And to make matters worse, many in our culture don't recognize the seriousness of this problem. In fact, our culture has elevated pride and anger almost to a virtue. Revenge is seen as standing up for yourself. Uh, instead of the ugly product of human nature that it is. If someone disrespects you, fighting back is, is seen as just what you're expected to do. And if you don't do that, uh, you know, if you show mercy and forgiveness, it's somehow to be scorned as a weakness. Uh, Dr. John MacArthur delivered a sermon almost one year ago, uh, which was entitled Forgiveness in an Age of Rage. Uh, and I want to read you an excerpt from his sermon because I believe he, he uh, greatly illustrated this problem. Quote, if any one corrupt attitude defines our culture, it is anger. There's anger in our music. There's anger in our films. There's anger in our television programs. There's anger in our schools. There's anger in our universities. There's anger in our families. There's anger everywhere in this society. And the absent virtue in all of this is forgiveness. The absence of forgiveness destroys relationships. It is, in the end, the destroyer of relationships. It is impossible to live in the world and not offend someone, and that then demands forgiveness. And where there is no forgiveness, there is just the marking up, the mounting up, the accumulation of offenses that continues to escalate to anger. Never is a person more like Satan than when he hates. Never is a person more like Satan than when he is angry, angry to the point that he wishes to kill, end quote. Conversely, as the old saying goes, never is a person more like God than when he loves and forgives. Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 to 14 reads, When you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, 
He made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of the decrees against us, which was hostile to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. Jesus demonstrated this great, the great importance of forgiveness to his disciples in the parable of the unforgiving slave in Matthew 18, 21 through 35. So let's turn our attention to our text this morning. Uh, so please turn in there if your Bibles, if you haven't already. And I'll go ahead and read, obviously starting at verse 21. Then Peter came and said to him, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to seventy times seven. For this reason, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his slaves. When he had begun to settle them, one who owed him ten thousand talents was brought to him. But since he did not have the means to repay, his Lord commanded him to be sold, along with his wife and children and all that he had, and for repayment to be made. So the slave fell to the ground and prostrated himself before him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will repay you everything. And the Lord of that slave felt compassion and released him and forgave him the debt. But that slave went out and found one of his fellow slaves who owed him a hundred denarii, and seized him and began to choke him, saying, Pay back what you owe. So his fellow slave fell to the ground and began to plead with him, saying, Have patience with me. And I will repay you. But he was unwilling and went and threw him in prison until he should pay back what was owed. So when his his fellow slaves saw what had happened, they were deeply grieved and came and reported to their Lord all that had happened. Then summoning him, his Lord said to him, You wicked slave, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. Should you not also have had mercy on your fellow slave in the same way that I had mercy on you? And his Lord, moved with anger, handed him over to the torturers until he should repay all that was owed him. My heavenly Father will also do the same to you if each of you does not forgive his brother from your heart. It is helpful to organize this parable into three different acts or scenes, if you will, similar to as if you were watching a high school play. Uh, Act number one, which I'm entitling The Slave's Encounter with the King. Act number two, which is the slave's dealing with his fellow slave. And then finally, act three, the king's judgment upon the slave. So I'm going to examine each scene in detail this morning, and I want us to pay close attention because each scene ends with a surprise, something shocking. And this would have been intentional on the part of Jesus. Uh, Each of these surprises were dramatic, and they would have been clearly uh, stood out to Jesus' disciples as they listened to the parable. So let's start by examining the historical uh, context in the setting here. So Matthew chapter 18 opens with Jesus and the disciples arriving in Capernaum, which was a city within the region of Galilee. The city was many miles north of Jerusalem and was located on the northwest shore of the Sea of Galilee. Jesus spends the entire chapter in private instruction with his disciples, and the lesson immediately prior to verses 21 through 35 are the instruction that our Lord gave in verses 15 through 20. And these regard how believers are to conduct themselves in relation to a person in the church who sins against them, and how church discipline is to be handled in cases where that person does not repent. This passage, verses 15 through 20, is worth a sermon in and of itself, so it's not my intention to cover it in depth this morning. But, as you recall, our Lord's commands are that if someone sins against us in the church, we are to approach that person privately 
And if that person listens to you, then you have won your brother and the relationship can be restored. Forgiveness would be a part of what is taking place in verse 15 when Jesus is talking about if he listens to you, you will have won your brother. So ideally, I mean, if someone sins against you, that's not ideal, but when that happens, ideally what then takes place is that you will go in private and tell him or her about it. They recognize that they did, in fact, sin against you, that they are sorry about it, and then they ask you for forgiveness. This is the way God expects us to resolve conflict in the church and how relationships can be restored. But, it continues on, if that person does not listen to you, you were to take one or two more believers from the church with you and visit the sinning brother. And then finally, if this proves unsuccessful, you were to tell it to the church. So the idea is then that the church would go and confront that person. And if that person still does not listen, then the church is to treat that person as an unbeliever. So that is, the church is to cease fellowship with that person as long as they willfully continue in sin and refuse to repent. That person is not to enjoy any benefits of church life until they repent. So Peter picked up on this, on how forgiveness is related to sin and life in the church, and he had this in mind when he asked his question to Jesus in verse 21. Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times? So, now where does Peter get the number seven as the number of times that we're supposed to forgive someone? Does he just pull this out of the air? Um, and, And also, by the way, Peter is talking about the number of times to forgive someone for the same sin. This isn't like the total number of times you get for your entire life for all sins. Um, So now, and also, seven times seems magnanimous, doesn't it? I mean, when someone asks us to forgive them, we usually expect to see evidence of genuine sorrow and remorse from that person, right? Remember the old saying, talk is cheap? Uh, maybe you remember when you were little and you would get into a fight with your brother or sister and your parents would make your brother or sister apologize to you and make up. And of course, they would often say the words, oh, I'm sorry, but you could easily tell that they didn't mean it. Well, in the same way, if someone kept sinning against me over and over and doing the exact same thing, at some point it's, it's reasonable to question how sincere that person is when they say they are sorry. For some reason, we, we want to see genuineness before we're willing to forgive. So this is what Peter is driving at, but, he, you know, but again, he just didn't pull the number out of the air, so where did he get it from? It actually comes from an old Jewish cultural understanding based on Amos chapter 1. Now, you don't have to turn there. I'm going to do that myself. I mean, you can if you'd like to. Uh, but I want to show you kind of where this comes from. And so I'm going to read Amos chapter 1. I'm just going to hit on a few verses. It's actually, there's a number of verses. There's 3, 6, 9, 11, and 13. But I don't want to belabor the point because you'll get it after just a few of these verses. Uh, So Amos chapter 1 verse 3 reads, Thus says the Lord, For three transgressions of Damascus and for four I will not revoke its punishment, because they threshed Gilead with implements of sharp iron. And again in verse 6, Thus says the Lord, For three transgressions of Gaza and for four... I will not revoke its punishment, because they deported an entire population to deliver it up to Edom. So I think you can kind of get the the point. Again, the the focus there is, in each of these verses, God is saying, for three transgressions, and then for four. So let me me kind of fill in what's going on here. In these verses, throughout uh, the chapter, or through the prophet Amos, God was stating his judgment on Israel's surrounding enemies for their transgressions against Israel. He specifically calls out Damascus, that is Syria, Gaza, that would be a reference to the Philistines. Tyre, uh, Edom, a reference to the Edomites. And then finally, Ammon, or the Ammonites. 
the rabbis of Jesus' time had reasoned that since God forgave Israel's enemies three times for the same sin, then surely this would have been the limit for personal forgiveness of others. The idea being that with three offenses, you know, God uh, you know, withheld judgment, but upon the fourth time, you know, he's coming at you. So where did, where did Peter get the number seven? So Peter then kind of more than double what was perceived to be the norm for the times. Uh, and also in that culture, the number seven was kind of seen as a round number. So in much the same way that, you know, fives and tens are kind of deemed to be round numbers in all culture, seven was kind of the same thing for theirs. So, so Peter kind of went above and beyond what he thought was the norm of the day. And, you know, he probably thought he was being generous. So like, oh, I'm sure seven should cover it. But notice Jesus' response to Peter. I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven, or in other translations, 70 and seven. Uh, So now before I move on, a quick point. Mathematically, it would seem that Jesus is instructing Peter that the limit is not seven times, but either 77 or 490, uh, depending on your translation. But this is actually a play on words by Jesus, and his ultimate message to Peter is more in line with, Peter, you propose to forgive a little, but I say you are to forgive without limit. This is an expression by Jesus to express an amount far, far greater than Peter's guess. The same concept can also be seen in Luke chapter 17, verse 4, where Jesus, also speaking about a sinning brother, said, And if he sins against you seven times a day, and returns to you seven times, saying, I repent, you are to forgive him. So again, the limit is not seven. So what does Jesus mean when he speaks of forgiveness? Since we're going to be studying this parable which has everything to do about forgiveness, we should probably understand what God has in mind when he's talking about forgiveness. As used in the Old Testament in Psalms, to forgive means to cover sin and its effects. Forgiveness, as God forgives, also means that he will not remember our sins or keep a record of them. Jeremiah thirty-one thirty-four also reads, Quote, they will not teach again, each man his neighbor and each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they all will know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and their sins I will remember no more. And Psalm 25, 7 reads, Do not remember the sins of, of my transgressions according to your loving kindness. Remember me for your goodness sake, O Lord. True forgiveness, then, is to forgive as God forgives, which means that we are to forgive completely and to not remember that sin anymore. It is literally a debt paid in full, and the debt is never collectible again. So again, Jesus answers Peter's question by saying, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to seventy times seven. Jesus then illustrates this answer to Peter by telling a parable. Jesus makes it clear that he's telling this parable to teach a valuable lesson about God and his kingdom. Notice there in verse 23, For this reason, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his slaves. So, for what reason? Well, here Jesus is indicating that there is some connection between forgiveness and understanding something about God himself in heaven. So this is the point that I want to just make because it needs to frame our understanding of the story. So let's get into the parable here. Verse 23 talks about a king meeting with his slaves to settle accounts with them. So again, what's going on here? What's the Bible talking about when it mentions a king settling accounts with his slaves? So the the Bible doesn't provide much detail in this area, but it could be that what Jesus had in mind here was that the slaves in the parable are regional governors of the king, and they were in charge of collecting taxes on the king's behalf. 
after the regional governor then would finish collecting the taxes from the people in his region, he would then need to make a report to the king, or basically make an account, showing the tax revenue he would have collected, and then ultimately showing how much he owes the king. This is plausible because it would explain why the slave in the parable owed such a great sum of money to the king, but also uh, we know that the kings in Jesus' day used governors in this fashion to manage the collection of taxes. This practice was also used by the Roman Empire, which occupied Israel during uh, Jesus' life on earth. If you remember Zacchaeus, uh, he was the owner of one such tax franchise that he'd purchased from the Romans, and also uh, you know, the disciple Matthew, he was also a tax collector. So let's turn to scene one of the parable. Uh, In verse 24, we meet one of the king's slaves, and we are told that upon examination by the king, it turns out that the slave owes the king a debt of 10,000 talents. A talent was a a unit of weight, and when it's in reference to a precious metal like gold or silver, it's basically equivalent to a unit of currency. Uh, And the talent was the largest denomination of currency in Jesus' day. Uh, One talent was the average yearly wage for a common laborer. Uh, Many Bible historians and scholars have attempted to provide an estimate as to how much a talent would be equivalent to in our system, and answers, as you could expect, vary widely. Uh, Fluctuations of interest rates, the value of gold and silver, uh, inflation, and also just the great amount of time from then until now make exact valuation very difficult. Uh, And I I was kind of tempted to try to come up with you like, okay, one talent back then is worth X number of dollars today. And I kind of got away from that because I think it would just kind of you know, confuse the story. I think it's just important to remember that if you remember that one talent was approximately the annual wage for a laborer, then just common sense would tell you it would take the slave 10,000 years of work to pay off the debt. So, and remember, people also didn't live nearly as long as, as, you know, as, as we do today back then. So the, king thing, the key thing to take away here is that the debt was so large that the slave could never hope to pay it off in his lifetime. Like, far from it. It would be a hundred lifetimes before that could even begin to be possible. And as the text states in verse 25, the king finds out that the slave did not have the means to pay the amount he owed. So again, in keeping with the illustration that the slave was the king's governor... Uh, It could be that the reason the slave didn't have the money to pay the king was maybe because he had embezzled the funds. So instead of paying the king what he was rightfully owed, he just kind of took it himself and spent it for his own purposes. Uh, So what's the king to do? So in order to collect at least some of the debt, the king ordered the slave to be sold off along with his wife and children and for repayment to be made. So this is basically a reference to like indentured servitude. So basically you'd be sold into someone else's service and then you would just need to work and work and work until you'd paid off the debt. But again, remember, the debt was so large that that would not be possible in his lifetime. So in response to this, verse 26, the slave fell fell to the ground and prostrated himself before the king and he begged the king, have patience with me and I will repay you everything. Now, the slave's condition, his desperate condition, is is very obvious. And in some sense, it's a noble promise. But the the king and the slave surely would have both recognized that it is a promise that the slave could never hope to keep. He could not hope to pay off such a large debt. But despite this, notice the king's reaction. The lord of that slave felt compassion and released him and forgave him the debt. Now, if we're not careful, ladies and gentlemen, it is really easy to just skip through this and not grasp how amazing this is. Look carefully. The king not only released him, but he also forgave the slave his debt. 
Wow. I mean, it would have been an astounding act of mercy if the king would have just simply released him. Remember, the slave didn't even fathom. He didn't even ask the king to forgive him the debt. He just asked for more time. But the king went so far as to forgive him the entire debt. The slave had just embezzled a huge fortune and rightfully deserved to be punished for his actions. The king had every right to enforce his debt against the slave, but instead, the text says that the king felt compassion towards the slave. I wanted to find this word just so we can make sure we get the full, clear picture of what's going on here. Compassion is defined as a feeling of deep sympathy and sorrow for another, accompanied by a strong desire to alleviate the suffering. It's synonymous with tenderness and mercy. The king looked upon the slave's desperate, hopeless position and strongly, genuinely desired to be kind and merciful to the slave. So he forgave the slave the entire debt. Think what a surprising reaction this is. I mean, this here is the surprise of Act 1. Think in our world, do you ever see this kind of forgiveness? Do you ever see this kind of mercy? I mean, the king just had a crime committed against him. So, I mean, you have this whole element of the king's pride probably would have been bruised. Like, how, who do you think you are, slave? Why do you think you can embezzle all this money from me and then come to me and ask for mercy? But that's not what happens here. We see a beautiful picture of forgiveness instead. So fresh off the king's forgiveness in scene one, now we're going to go to to scene number two. And the very next verse, verse 28, takes us to scene number two. But that slave went out and found one of his fellow slaves who owed him a hundred denarii, and he seized him and began to choke him, saying, pay back what you owe. See the but there? The but, that's a conjunction. And basically a conjunction will link two ideas and two concepts. And when you're using the word but, that kind of, it it logically implies there's going to be a shifting, there's going to be a logical change based on, so the second idea is going to be different than the first. And it's going to be helpful to to kind of highlight the contrast between the king's conduct and the slave's conduct. So literally the very next sentence after the king had forgiven the first slave his tremendous debt, we see this going on. So notice some surprising things here. First, the text does not mention any thankfulness on the part of the slave towards his king. It's literally, good news, slave, you've just been forgiven a hundred lifetimes worth of debt. Thanks, king. I'm going to go out and find my fellow slave, and I'm going to go throttle him. We just want to shout at the slave, don't we? It's like, hello, don't you recognize this from somewhere else? Doesn't this look familiar to you? Except there's a few more differences. First, notice the size of the debt. The text notes that the size of this debt was 100 denarii. So again, how much is this? So to put it in context, just to aid in the comparison, a denarii was the average daily wage for a common laborer. So 100 denarii would have equaled a little more than three months' worth of, of, a, worth of wages. So obviously this was a pittance compared to the size of the debt the first slave had been forgiven. Second, note the cruelty of the slave towards his fellow slave. And again, contrast that with the first scene. So the king wasn't cruel at all towards the first slave. The king had called him in, saw the massive debt which was owed, and proceeded to do exactly what the law demanded. Then, when that slave begged for mercy, the king acted with compassion and forgave the slave far more than he requested. But what does the slave do? Well, he goes out and begins to choke his fellow slave over a debt that is tiny by comparison. In fact, it gets even worse. The fellow slave also begged for forgiveness, but instead of showing his fellow slave mercy, the first slave goes and has him tossed in a debtor's prison. Harsh doesn't even begin to describe this. 
This was grossly immoral and evil because the slave had just been showed tremendous mercy, but he wasn't willing to show any mercy towards his fellow slave. It was also bizarre and irrational because their first slave reacted far more strongly than the king did, and yet the debt was much, much smaller. And it was foolish because the fellow slave now can't repay the debt while he's in prison. It's kind of hard to work when you're in prison, isn't it? So you're not going to be getting paid back while this guy's in prison. So again, here's the, do you see how shocking this is? This is now this, the shock and the surprise of scene number two. We, what would we have expected in this situation? We would have expected the first slave to be like, you know what, I understand. I had just been forgiven a tremendous debt myself. I'm going to show mercy to you. No, you know what, you're a jerk because you owe me all this money. You're going to jail. So that's, that's shock number two here. And now this is going to bring us to scene number three, the final scene of the parable. The king finds out all about this because the other fellow slaves saw all that had happened, and they were deeply upset about what the first slave had done, and they went back and reported it to the king. And the king was outraged, and, and so he summoned the first slave to him and said, You wicked slave, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me, should you not have also had mercy on your fellow slave in the same way that I had mercy on you? The king calls the first slave wicked here for the reasons we just covered. And I also want to define here what wicked means. It means morally bad, evil, ungodly. It is describing something that offends God and his holy character. The first slave was wicked, again, because he did not forgive even though he had been forgiven. The interesting thing about how verse 33 is written is that it is really a command masquerading as a rhetorical question. A rhetorical question, you remember, is a question that implies its answer. So we can really understand the sentence as, you should have had mercy on your fellow slave in the same way that I had mercy on you. And the parable finishes, verse 34, the text says that the king was moved with anger and handed the slave over to the torturers until the slave repays the original debt he owed to the king. Moved with anger there communicates the idea that the king was so full of anger that it dominated him and directed his actions. The slave's actions were so wicked in the king's eyes that the king ordered a severe punishment for the slave. So in the end, the slave remained responsible for his debt and was not forgiven because he did not forgive his fellow slave. And he would experience punishment at the hand of the torturers until his debt was paid off. Again, remember, that's never going to happen while in his lifetime. So the slave owed such a large debt, he had no hope of ever escaping punishment or having his freedom again. Now pay close attention because here's the point of the whole story. Here's the point of the parable. Verse 35, My heavenly Father will also do the same to you if each of you does not forgive his brother from your heart. Cut to black, scene comes down, roll credits. This here is the surprise of act number three. This was a sudden, abrupt end of the story that would have been intentionally shocking and a gut check to the disciples. And it would have been surprising because it dramatically challenged their understanding of the importance of forgiveness and the consequences of unforgiveness. Remember, they thought the standard is three. You just got to forgive three times, and then after that, you know, you can do whatever you want. God doesn't care. This is dramatically contrasting to that. You, your, your limit is not three. You need to forgive without limit because that is how much God has forgiven each one of us. 
So again, this is the main lesson and the point that Jesus made. Genuine believers, those who have been born again and are a part of God's kingdom, forgive others readily and forgive others without limit. Now, I want to clarify a few things because it can be easy to misunderstand the lesson if we leave it at that. First, this does not mean that it will always be easy to forgive. There are some tremendous hurts and injuries that others can inflict upon us. And in fact, I'm sure many or most, if not all of us, have probably had that happen to us sometime in our life. But if you have been genuinely saved and have had a born-again nature, you will have the capacity to forgive even great hurts in time with God's help. And our motivation to forgive, again, is because we realize that God has forgiven us far, far more than we are ever even asked to forgive. Second, this does not mean that if we forgive others, we can force God to forgive us. This would be kind of akin to a works righteousness idea, and that's not what Jesus is talking about. The parable is showing that forgiveness is a necessary heart characteristic of someone who has been truly saved. So if, if you have a person who holds grudges, doesn't forgive, has no motivation to forgive, then there is every right to question whether that person has been truly saved. So before I close the message this morning, I want to take some time to examine the application of the text we've just covered to our own lives. So now that I've covered what the text says and what it means by what it says, we all, myself included, have a responsibility to apply it to each of our individual circumstances. So I'll start out by asking each one of you, do you have an issue with not forgiving others? How readily do you forgive when others when they ask of you? Do you find that you hold grudges or that you find it difficult to forgive others? Do you find that you dwell on or hold on to minor hurts and perceived slights by other people? And again, I'm not talking about really major or serious injuries. I'm talking about the little minor or petty things that come up in our lives just by being around other people in the world. When someone cuts you off on the highway on the way to work, do you find that you spend lots of time thinking how great it would be if you could get back at that person? If someone says something annoying or hurtful or something that injures your pride, does it stick with you for several days? Or are you find that you're able to let it go and, think, and just not think about it? The Bible has a lot to say in this area beyond Matthew 18. Colossians chapter 3, verses 12 through 13 read, So, as those who have been chosen by God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness and patience, bearing with one another, and forgiving each other, whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. Also, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 32, Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ has forgiven you. Other verses which also relate to forgiveness are, verse, are 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 15, See that no one repays another with evil for evil, but always seek after that which is good for one another and for all people. And 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 8 through 9, quote, To sum up, all of you be harmonious, sympathetic, brotherly, kind-hearted, and humble in spirit, not returning evil for evil or insult for insult, but giving a blessing instead. For you were called for the very purpose that you might inherit a blessing. These verses involve forgiveness because you can't obey these commands if you're holding on to grudges and not forgiving others. This is a quote that I heard from someone this week. Revenge is really, the, is really the outworking of unforgiveness. You haven't forgiven a debt. Instead, you're out to collect it. Finally, I want to highlight one other thing. One common cause of unforgiveness is pride. I've noticed this in my own life. 
I, and I touched on it earlier in the sermon, but I want to revisit it here. Pride can be a powerful root cause of unforgiveness because what could be going on, not in all cases, but what could be going on is that we are unwilling to forgive because we believe ourselves to be so important that we don't want to forgive any slight against us. The mentality goes something like, how dare that person do that to me? I'll show them. They won't want to cross me once I get done with them. Somehow, we think that the sins that others commit against us are far, far greater than the sins that we have committed against God. But God has forgiven each of us far more than we will ever forgive others. And if God is not above forgiving others, and he does so freely to all who ask, then why do we think that we are above forgiving others? We are certainly not greater than God. So as we close our service this morning, and uh, each of us are going to go our own separate way, I, just, I challenge each of you this week to just really spend time and think and examine your own lives, just how well do you love, how well do you forgive, uh, do you forgive readily? Do you hold grudges? Uh, you know, grudges and, and an unforgiving spirit, you know, they can really just weigh your life down, and they can really impede your Christian walk. So I just encourage you, if, if you have a problem with this, just spend time this week and really take that to God and, and try to work on that problem. Um, so with that, uh, please bow your heads with me, and I'll close this in prayer. Heavenly Father, you are tremendously merciful to us, and you forgive perfectly, you forgive freely and without limit, Father. And I I ask that you be with each one of us this week as we try to put this in practice in our own lives. It can be so difficult. In fact, not only is it difficult, but it is impossible unless we have had a changed heart and a changed nature before you, Father. Uh, Be with us this week. Uh, I just ask you, uh, help us to focus our lives on you, we want to make uh, your, your glory and your honor and your praise the focal point of our life, Father. And I just ask you to be with each one of us. Help us to not get distracted by this world. Help us to keep, uh, keep us free from temptation and sin uh, so that when people come into contact with us, Father, they may clearly recognize that we are your children. It's in your name that I pray. Amen.